Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 152 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we speak with Bonita Adib of the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance, a program under the nonprofit STEAM Onward, all about heritage seeds. The plant profile is on yarrow, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Ellen Wells of Food and Flower Inc., who shares the last word on growing cucumelons. Joining us on today's episode is Bonita Adib. She is the founder of STEAM Onward, and part of STEAM Onward are two projects, Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance, an organization dedicated to aiding minority groups, and Ujama Seeds, a fundraising effort to provide diversity in farming and bridge the gap between prospective growers and seed companies. Welcome, Bonita. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. It's wonderful to have you on, and we're going to talk all about seed stories and backgrounds and the cultures that have brought us some of the seeds that we are growing in our own gardens and some of the seeds that we can start to grow and bring back some of those heritage uh, varieties that maybe have been lost to time but are getting revived so we'll go into all of that in a minute but first on the garden dc podcast we like to ask our guests were they born with chlorophyll in their vein and or a green thumb um i'll have to say that must be uh, it must be true that i was born uh, with chlorophyll in my veins, certainly my uh, oldest memories are from the garden and uh, from uh, distributing food uh, as a part of the work of my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather was a minister in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and uh, we distributed fresh fruits and vegetables to our neighbors. And so in my onesies, I can remember going out with him uh, with boxes of fresh food, uh, delivering those to communities in need. And so uh, today, this very day, I started off a conversation with a new group of uh, Black farmers in in the Mid-Atlantic that's looking at uh, reclaiming our agricultural heritage, but reclaiming control of the food supply. Uh, Communities uh, are in need, uh, but we can't uh, count on anybody to really deliver that in a consistent manner. Uh, We've got to take back uh, the skills and knowledge it took to be uh, sustainable. And so we're busy doing that work. And I must tell you, a blessing comes along with that. And it's so important to have control of what you're eating, what you're growing, and never to lose that, I think, because that's where the power is. Right, Bonita? It is the ultimate uh, power, and it's also the ultimate nod of respect 
to our ancestors who provided for us, all the multi-generational folks that were seed savers and produced food, quality food for their families. And uh, of course, into the beautiful planet, Mother Earth, that is so rich and has done so much for us. And we need to be more grateful. And that's mm. what I like to say is we need to show more uh, more humility and, and uh, we need to do more to uh, show respect uh, for this uh, beautiful gift that we've been given. Mm -hmm. I think we take so much for granted. And that includes, you know, a lot of what comes to our table is just magically there, right? Unfortunately, it's not magically there. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the people who do that work, who provide that wonderful food that we love. I mean, let's face it, some of our happiest times in life are over a, a meal. And, you know, the best fun, the most joy. But the people who brought that food to our table and the the generations of seed savers that provided uh, those varieties to us uh, are forgotten and, and not acknowledged. And, you know, that's a problem. It's a problem when you don't give thanks. You know, uh, when I was a child, just about every child, when they sat down at the dinner table, gave thanks but nowadays it's it's like there's a feeling that somehow the food just magically appears, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and we don't have any responsibility or any duty to acknowledge where that food comes from. And so we're reclaiming it. We're celebrating it. And we're uh, our goal is to bring that knowledge forward to future generations. And that is what's so exciting about the work of Ujamaa. Mm -hmm. I think it's all about connections, like making the connection between what's growing and that original seed. I think some people, you know, ne have never seen a seed other than those edible seeds, like say a pumpkin seed. They wouldn't know what a okra seed or a collard seed looked like. Um, and then there's that connection between the farmer and how it gets to you and making those connections, which, you know, at farmer's markets and those types of things, you might be able to talk directly to a farmer, but a lot of people have never made that type of connection to know their farmer. Yeah. And not only has that connection be lost, been lost between the consumer mm -hmm. and, and the people who bring you the food, but even between farmers, uh, most farmers have uh, forgotten the art of seed saving. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I'm thinking back, I'm going back uh, maybe 80 or 90 years as we're interviewing farmers, we're finding out that uh, many of them are buying their seeds from the local store and doing very little seed trading. So there are certain communities you can go into where people have kept up the art of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, seed uh, swaps, and which is so important and such an important cultural activity to do in order to preserve heirloom varieties. But it's also important for biodiversity and biogenetics. I mean, the seeds that we have or, you know, we, we know that uh, human beings cannot intermingle with so much and have a good results, you know. So mm -hmm. it's the same thing with plants. You know, you have to be careful how, how they cross, how they intersect. And then in order to preserve certain varieties, it requires isolation. So when you think about some of the patterns of human behavior, some of them we like, some of them we don't like, it was ordered to maintain, uh, you know, a breed or a variety or or a staple. And and those same things we learned, uh, we, we see in human behavior. Almost everything we do is a reflection of what we see in the natural world. Mm 
So uh, it's, it's very exciting. So we want farmers to also regain the skills of seed saving because seeds are a commodity and have been commodified uh, by a few companies in the world. They're attempting to control our entire uh, food supply. And people don't realize that that's like having the uh, cartel, the oil cartel, having control of all the oil. So when they decide to raise prices or lower prices or uh, create or stop producing altogether, um, we're victimized by that. So what we what we need to do is bring back some basic survival skills all the way down to the grandma and grandpa and children level and, and make sure that every person at least has some concept of, of how they can help uh, provide for themselves. And even in urban settings or no matter where you are, there's probably something mm-hmm. you can grow that you could consume. So, you know, we consider ourselves a part of a greater movement to reclaim that agricultural heritage because if we eat, each day we are participating in agricultural activities. So nobody's as far away from agriculture as they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. And I always say that, are you breathing air? The the plants provided that air. <laughs> that oxygen came from the trees. Like, are you eating and breathing? So we do hold an annual a seed swap day and seed exchange with Washington Gardener magazine. And we're always so pleased when people bring some of their family seeds and the stories that go along with them. Um, and so we'll go into some of those stories. And Bonita, I wanted to dial it a little bit back to where you talked about um, your childhood in North Carolina. And from there, um, where did you go professionally? Because we want to talk a little bit about you and your background and then how you got to the Washington, D.C. Well, I region. must tell you that um, the ancestors and the spirits uh, uh, were clearly calling me back home. Uh, I grew up, uh, I, um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, my mother decided that I needed to, uh, we needed to go back to North Carolina where we had a big garden, but we come from a family who's been farming in the United States since 1710, as far as uh, back as we can go. Mm. And we know that the pride uh, that was had in these farmers and their ability to take care of their families was, uh, you know, one of the bragging rights, you know, <laughs> of our family. You know, like one of my uh, great uh, grand uncles was uh, the first uh, black um uh, extension officer in Winsboro, uh, which is in Fairfield County, South Carolina. They bragged about that. He was the bomb diggity, you know, uh, because he could, um, he was respected at the level that he was able to advise all the farmers in that county. And along with that, uh, success of farming came the ability to produce enough food to have surplus. And I want to talk about surplus because surplus is the thing that created civilization. So the fact that uh, farmers were successful enough to produce more than just what they needed for their families, but for other uh, folks in their community, allowed people to move away from farming activities and make some shoes or build some, uh, do some ironwork or, or uh, become a, a baker or do other tasks. So the success of farmers is the success mm-hmm. of civilization. And I'll be doggone it. I'm going to tell everybody that. You know, if you're doing a job that is not farming related, you have to thank 
your ancestral farmers who were able to build a society that was successful enough to create surplus. Surplus is the basis for civilization. I know. Let me get down off my pulpit and go back and talk about my family a little bit. <laughs> but it was <laughs> nah. But I think that is such an important point. You're you're so right, Bonita, that that bounty of the earth that was able to be stored and shared and commodified, that created literally That is the definition economies. of a civilization. And it requires uh, uh, some people to be highly skilled. So in my family, uh, like I said, it was bragging rights. I have a, a you live in Washington, D.C., um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a school called Kelly Miller Middle School. Have you heard of that school? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that Kelly Miller is my mm-hmm. great grand uncle. So uh, that's a story uh, that I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about as I learn more about it. Uh, Kelly Miller was a small boy uh, playing in the dirt <laughs> along the road. And some, I believe there were um, uh, Quakers uh, who were setting up schools after uh, the Civil War, and uh, they came came by, saw this little boy scratching in earth, and realized he was he was adding numbers. Those were numbers that he was scratching. So Kelly Miller, um, who was my uh, grandfather's uncle, uh, was was brought to school at Howard University when it was a you know it was a, a school set up originally for um, uh, by General Howard. He was a uh, Indian war hero. And he set this school up for Native Americans, but because of the um, flight after um, uh, the Civil War, there was movement, there was a migration north, and thousands of African American people were leaving the South, coming to Washington, D.C. So uh, my great uh, grand uh, uncle was involved in the work related to that. So what Kelly Miller did is after he finished uh, um, what was then a high school at Howard Howard, uh, a normal school, it became a college, and he graduated from Howard University. And then uh, he, once he finished, he wanted a, a more education. So he was the first black man admitted to um, Johns Hopkins University. And uh, when he came back uh, from his educational uh, uh, journeys, he uh, started um, the university. Uh, he helped to convert un- uh, Howard University from a college to a university, uh, looking using that model. He was the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences, uh, and he worked so hard. His, ba- his background in mathematics turned out to be astronomy, and he loved the stars, as I do. I had so uh, so many dreams of observing the stars, but um because of this great migration that came to Washington, D.C., Kelly Miller uh, uh, went, moved his attention to studying how the needs of these migrants, as they came, they were sleeping in parks. They came up with nothing but the clothes on their back or small suitcase. Where were they going to live? And so he, along with other uh, thinkers of their time, W.E. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, uh, began to study the needs of these communities and helped to uh, to develop what we call sociology, modern-day sociology, with the the study of humans. So uh, Kelly Miller, after he uh, did this work, he did two things that are related to this conversation. One, he started a very large garden at Howard University, which was super important, and uh, worked to be an example of 
meeting the needs of the community there at Howard. But secondly, he went back home to Winsboro and he bought the plantation that his mother was enslaved on. And this is one of the most important stories in my family is how, I mean, what sweet revenge when you really think about it. So my great-great-grandmother, Rebecca, was proud of her skills. She worked on the Southern Railroad to build that. She was proud about that. But my uh, my uh, uncle Kelly Miller was not thrilled with, you know, having his mother as an enslaved person. So he was able to buy that plantation and do work in Winsboro. So um, uh, I'm really, really um, now focused on how the work that we do can serve our community in a, a firsthand way. You know, how can I put something nutritious in the hands of individuals? And I realize that I don't own uh, 10,000 acres of land, but what I do have access to is heirloom variety seeds. And by putting these seeds in the hands of individuals, they can begin to take sovereignty over their own food supply. And that is essential work. And it's the work uh, that uh, when I do this work, I see uh, Kelly Miller, I'm looking at a photo of him now, and I'm standing on the shoulders of these great ancestors of mine who came here with skills, they were brought here because of their agricultural skills, uh, but, but we're able to multiply those, teach others and work and support uh, uh, us in living a ha happy, healthy life, which we can't do without a good meal. <laughs> we have to have it. So um, mm -hmm. uh, that's that's kind of uh, one of the stories that connects me. Uh, my grandfather, the one I spoke about earlier, and his work to deliver food to the community, and uh, George Washington Carver and his Jessup, a wagon that traveled throughout the South, uh, helping uh, farmers uh, gain sovereignty, grow their own food, and become independent, support their families. So it's such an important work, and I uh, and I thank uh, thank my ancestors providing me uh, with a roadmap to the work that I need to do uh, currently. Hmm. Well, that is a wonderful story about your family background. And I had no idea that Howard had any type of space for growing on the campus at any time. You know, I always think of it as the medical school and, and some of the arts that are prominent there, but that's great to hear about some of the agricultural background. Thank you. I'm working with Dr. Ida Jones, who uh, was the archivist uh, previously at the Moreland Spingart Library, which Kelly helped to find. And uh, she told me about this garden. So we are, uh, along with uh, some folks working with Kelly Miller Middle School Farm, they actually have a farm at Kelly Miller Middle School. And we will mm -hmm. be working with them to rediscover the location of the gardens and to reinstitute that if possible on the Howard campus. It's a dream. I'm just at the at the first steps, but you probably know me, I'm pretty pig-headed. If I put my <laughs> mind to something, I, as long as I have breath, I'll be trying to get it Well, I'm looking forward to the ribbon cutting opening of, of that <laughs> at Howard and being able to attend that. And for those listeners who might be outside the Washington, D.C. area, I'm sure you're familiar with Howard University. And the Kelly Miller School is in the Deanwood neighborhood of Washington, D.C., if you ever want to come by in the city and, and check that out. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of those heritage and heirloom seeds that Ujamaa Seeds is carrying. And maybe we should actually start with 
how did that name come about and uh, what is Ujama Seeds? So I was working um, in communities with health departments and communities on hunger issues. I had a group of uh, high school kids and when they went to college, some of them stayed with me and we were working on hunger initiatives. And uh, we had kind of two pieces of it. One was looking at, uh, uh, because we have access to beautiful Chesapeake Bay, you know, how could we uh, increase the food uh, availability coming out of the waterways? And then also looking at uh, heirloom, you know, fresh vegetables coming from the region. And in this work, I met a a woman by the name of uh, Fatima Hassan, who is an urban planner for Prince George's County, who uh, was focusing on a land and uh, heirs property and uh, supporting uh, growers in uh, in Southern Maryland. So we sat there at this hunger meeting going like, we're going to do something one day together. <laughs> and it turned out that uh, we had the opportunity uh, to uh, begin to talk about how we could reintegrate a love for the natural world, a world of uh, protecting the environment back into p- with public school kids. And so I'm on the advisory of Prince George County uh, programs, ag, environmental, ed, uh, natural resources programs. So we began to put our, our heads together and come up with the idea that we could um, develop, uh, you know, encourage schools to, to do more uh, and use the school facility as a, you know, a growing space. Uh, there were other people like Paul, Dr. Paul Lovelace from Akakee uh, Foundation and other people who joined us in this idea. And uh, we decided to, we had to fund it. That's always the hardest part for nonprofits. So um, uh, we came up with the idea that we would uh, start selling uh, seeds, native fruit, nuts, and berries, and starts uh, as an entrepreneurial activity for the youth. And uh, we set it up. The kids worked a whole year to develop their online uh, website when COVID came and shut down all the work that these uh, young folks had been doing. And so about a week later, uh, I got news uh, from uh, Paul Lovelace about the beginning of the Cooperative Gardens Commission. We joined the Cooperative Gardens Commission and uh, developed a system for distributing uh, free seeds donated by the organic seed industry to people in need across the country. So about 2,000 volunteers stepped up to create kind of a victory garden idea, but this time the government didn't step up. You know, we didn't have any help from the government. Hmm. And so we developed a seed hub in Philadelphia that distributed seeds to 300 organizations, individuals that would distribute those to communities in need. So Steve Mommer became the seed hub for the DMV. But because uh, we, we had already developed an online presence, uh, we were able to uh, send seeds to anyone in the country or anyone that the U.S. Postal Office could reach um, from our website. So that uh, free seed website, I think we started out with six varieties of seeds. We were going to charge like two bucks for each one. And that turned into a free seed hub. Uh, and people ordered seeds. I think uh, over the course of time between my organization and the others, we're still going, we're distributing sweet potatoes right now, but um, we were able to support about 100,000 uh, gardens. Unfortunately, 
most of the communities that we were serving uh, were not getting the things that they felt were culturally meaningful. They were asking for things like, do you have any of that kalalu? Or do you have scotch bonnet? You know, or do you have molakaya? Or do you have um, bitter melon or, or bitter leaf? They were asking for things that were not donated to us. And so uh, my dear uh, friend and uh, collaborator, uh, um, uh, Nate Kleiman came up with the idea that well, we need to get started seed farming ourselves. So um, we had uh, thought about what we should start with. We started out with sorghum because uh, it's a very culturally meaningful variety. We started out growing Della, and we had the kids uh, who were considered essential workers during COVID, so they're able to get out to the farm. We planted the crop of Della sorghum, which is a sweet sorghum that has multiple uses, and uh, it was very exciting. We, The kids, it didn't require a lot of maintenance, so you know, I think one time we went to weed it, and then we produced our first harvest in 2020, I believe. And from that, uh, we got the bug that we can produce our own seed. But from that particular crop came much value-added products. So we produced uh, a, maple, uh, a syrup similar to maple syrup that was commonly eaten all over the East Coast many years ago. We produced a molasses. It makes the most delicious gingerbread. But we also, from the leaf, realized that we could make native dyes and fibers uh, from the leaf, from the bagasse. It could be used to uh, create biochar. And we also realized that uh, the seed could be used as flour or even um, sorghum milk could be produced from it. Uh, a high uh, protein rich uh, breakfast cereal. And we began to realize all the things that were um, could be uh, developed from uh, this one crop. And so that kind of launched us to do want to do more. And as we began to search the government, um, that uh, a collection, GRIN, which is uh, Agriculture Research Service uh, Seeds, we found multiple varieties of sorghum that were suited, that had naturalized itself, even though it's an African crop that originated in the horn, it has naturalized itself all over the world. And so we started out with that one crop. Then we began to uh, hold these events where we talked to people. This was all during COVID, so it was online. We asked people to bring the eldest member of their family and to talk to us about what was uh, grown in their garden, what was in granny's, your granny's garden. If you slipped and you hurt your knee, did grandma put a treatment on it? If you got a cold or if you were sick, what was the remedy that grandmother was using? or grandfather that came from the garden. And so from these, I guess we did that almost a year, we developed a, a suggested list of what plants were culturally meaningful from, uh, from the Caribbean, from Africa, from the South, from the Asian communities, and uh, from our local Native American communities, we started that work. So uh, once we were able to identify what was meaningful, then it was our duty to farm that and to produce seed crop, to make that available. Uh, those were not available for most um, most of the seed companies, uh, that uh, the organic seed companies, because they're Southern crops and they're African crops. And uh, they weren't um, grown in the Northeast where most of those companies are located. So we began to adapt those crops and we continue to do that work um, 
and uh, and I think you've probably heard of the Heirloom Collar Project, which was another one where where 120 varieties of collar were languishing in freezers somewhere. And our dear uh, a co-founder of Ujama, uh, Mama Ira Wallace from Southern Exposure, helped us uh, to bring heirloom collars out of the vault and into the gardens and into some pots <laughs> so we could... Uh, we could uh, celebrate that delicious food that uh, was basically developed by enslaved populations uh, throughout the Southern states. Mm. So it's been a journey of love. And um, and I'm sitting here, I think I have 12 or 15 varieties of uh, sorghum that's multiple use in front of me right now. Also, we did work on trying to help people understand that all the Southern peas are derived from Africa. And so we've done a lot of work around re-educating people about honoring the original seed keepers. In this case, all the Southern peas uh, are from Africa. They came uh, in slave ships and in other ways to the United States. And uh, our our um, joy with Ujama is to grow out these varieties of seeds and make them available to uh, the public. So mm-hmm. we're working, I have right here something called the Southern Pea, the Peking Black, which is a delicious uh, seed that we are growing in partnership with Southern Exposure uh, Seed Exchange. But uh, we work with Utopian Seeds. We have over 200 varieties of okra and uh, we're working on uh, perennial uh, tropical uh, plants. I don't know if everybody knows that sweet potato or or a tropical perennial that has been uh, developed to grow. We know how to hold it over the cold months and bring it back. So it, it's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of people that are excited about uh, working with us. So we get new growers uh, every day. I had a grower call me yesterday, a, a Ghanaian grower, uh, who has uh, a very rare things that many people have asked me for, which is bitter leaf and water leaf that are two nutrient-dense greens that didn't make the middle passage, but this guy's growing them in um, Clinton, (laughs) Maryland, and uh, he will be uh, providing those seeds for our next catalog, hopefully, if everything goes well. That is great to hear. Yeah, I think a lot of the greens, because the seeds are more fragile for lettuces and greens, they have a much shorter seed storage time than say peas and beans and squash seeds, which can last for years, if not decades. Um, I think that's why we had a lot of trouble maybe sourcing them or even getting them from generation to generation, because if they weren't planted out each year and, and re harvested and resaved, then you pretty much lost them. Um, because the yes, yeah. uh, this the regenerative, I think it's ten percent maybe yes. oh, yeah. <laughs> that will come back from a seed after a year for some lettuce and green seeds. That's right. And did you know that lettuce are uh, originated in North Africa, so it too is okay. an African crop. Yeah. So um, we have uh, developed uh, multiple collections as a way to simplify education around these varieties, and hopefully they'll be coming out. Uh, in the future. We have, of course, the three sisters, which most people know about, but I'm surprised at how they can't name even one variety of corn, squash, or beans. So it's mm. it's it's knowledge 
that has been uh, lost, but we're reclaiming it. We also want to give credit to indigenous American growers for chilies, all chilies, all peppers come from America's Mm -hmm. potatoes and tomatoes. Uh, Tomatoes were, um, were uh, developed uh, by the Aztecs. And so if we, uh, we're uh, doing our due diligence every time we sat down to a delicious meal. I think we could probably thank the uh, South American or American uh, indigenous population for the food on our plate and also uh, African and Asian growers of which um, uh, 80 to 90 percent of our food has its origins outside of Europe. So it's very exciting uh, exciting work and it makes people happy and it ends in a delicious meal so we make friends we make a lot of friends kathy yeah, i was gonna say if you feed people they come back and they're super happy about that they um, like it a lot. oh yeah so one of the points you had was about the african or southern pea which i guess you know we could start calling them african peas instead of southern peas to really educate about their origin and the enslaved peoples who were brought over from africa along with those seeds or some of the things that they were growing uh, were brought because of their skilled growing um, talents that they had so they were chosen because they were skilled growers and would be able to work on the plantations and i think that point is kind of lost in history a lot they just depict it like they were just grabbing random people but they weren't they were going and trying to get the best of the farmers and the growers from africa and bring them over to work on the plantations which is you know a, a sad story but that does tell you some of the mentality and why it was done. Well, we're dealing with the, with the redemption and the truth that it heals. So an example uh, would be the Ezel uh, Black IP, hmm. which came to Gullah Geechee land and it was stewarded and managed by the Ezel family. And uh, a- after slavery, everywhere they went, if they were sold, they carried the seed with them. And now that seed is available to us. And it's really so exciting uh, to think that this family was able to do what very few families could do, which is hold on to a piece of their family history and heritage and provide this yummy, yummy thing for us. Another thing that you probably would be excited about is uh, the Carolina Gold Rice. Hmm. And so uh, Carolina Gold Rice, uh, of course, rice was one of the, what some people call trauma crops, along with tobacco and uh, and uh, and cotton, mm. indigo, uh, rice, these and sweet and sugarcane, these were major uh, cash crops that built America, that built the the entire world. I mean, if you look at most of the palaces in Europe, they were built on the back of sugarcane. Uh, oh yes, yeah, and but, tobacco. Um, yep, that's right, and tobacco uh, workers. Uh, But what we are doing is we're telling the happy story that our ancestors were brought here because of their talents. If you've been to Charleston, you see the ironworks, you see the Mindy, were iron workers from West Africa that were brought here specifically and did that work. And the the, uh, rice economy built South Carolina. And we are growing Carolina gold rice. 
which is so important. And the story of rice is really uh, amazing. There's a book called Black Rice uh, that talks about the history and how uh, many of the scholars who traveled to Africa uh, purposely, uh, 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 let's say, whitewashed the history of rice. They did not acknowledge that rice was indigenous to Africa as it was to Asia as well. What's interesting, this, uh, this variety of rice is so flexible. It's so amazing. I call it, it's sort of like uh, my ancestors, you know, they could live in multiple environments and they would, you know, do whatever they had to do. This rice can, um, can grow upland. It can grow in brackish water. It can grow in multiple climates. And uh, the other thing about it is that it's low on the glycemic index, which means that I get to eat rice again. <laughs> so uh, very exciting product. Uh, you know, it was it's very highly prized as a as a, a rice sold in gourmet shops, but it will be available for people to grow their African rices in their own backyards. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And I it is like not something a lot of home gardeners have even attempted. So that that will be a little bit of an education curve, right? But that will be so fun to try out. It's doable. I have some mm-hmm. right on my deck right yep. now uh, that is sprouted. Yeah, and I've seen some nice demonstrations even at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival of mm-hmm. some African rice is growing. And so if it can grow on the National Mall, it can grow. It can grow anywhere. Yeah, it can grow <laughs> anywhere. Um, I want to talk about, you talk, You referred to 200 varieties of okra, and I just love growing okra. I think it's a beautiful plant. Even if you don't care for the taste of okra, I always tell people to grow it just for the looks. Yeah, it's in the hibiscus family. It's, it has such a beautiful flower, and it's very productive. Well, you know, uh, Kathy, I haven't met many people who don't like gumbo. Mm. So, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I have a story about that. I was in in Senegal, West Africa, and uh, some friends had given me a dry okra product that you sprinkle and use it like a thickener in soup. And it makes such a, a good uh, soup thickener. It was my last day in Dakar. And I'm going through all the stores trying to get bring some of this powder back with me. And I could not remember the name in Wolof, which is the dominant language in Senegal. And so I'm going and I'm trying to motion everybody, nobody's speaking English. And I'm like, you know, it's like it's it looks like a pot. And so I get back on my airplane. I sit next to my friend who uh, who invited us to come uh, to Senegal. And I said, what is the name of okra? I couldn't for life of me remember how to say it in, in Wolof. And he said, oh, it's gumbo. <laughs> so with egg on my face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, gumbo uh, is something and the use of it, uh, you know, it's fantastic. Uh, of course, those Louisiana people, no harm to you, Louisiana people, but we make an amazing gumbo in uh, the Carolinas as well. <laughs> and ours does not require a roux uh, because okra can provide that for you. Um, uh, okra, um, we're working with uh, Chris Smith from Utopian Seeds, who is the American guru on okra. Uh, we are growing uh, all kinds of uh, okra uh, that has beautiful leaves, that has amazing stories that come with it. There's the Catawba Freeman that was um, grown by Catawba Indians and their enslaved population 
probably no North Carolina Indians tribes where I had many slaves as a part of their uh, communities. Uh, But I just got one in the mail just yesterday that I want to talk about. And it was uh, sent to me by Mike uh, Washburn from Seed Savers Exchange. And this one is something called the Angola Prison Okra. Hmm. So do you have you ever heard of the Angola Prison? I have not. I'm, I'm interested to hear about this. Well, you've seen it in, a, in movies because there was a movie about these guys in the deep south and they went around and they were singing bluegrass mm-hmm. and i forget the name of that movie it was a really popular movie oh I, it was with george clooney it's coming yes to me. yes um, so oh, bro- oh brother we're out where oh, are oh, oh i yeah. love that because you know oh, yes I'm from the region of north so uh, north they Carolina. escaped from that prison is that was That's part of the story right. yep that there was it is Angola prison uh-huh. okay so uh we uh got our hands on I, I just they came to me in uh yesterday in the mail uh to grow out this variety of okra that was used to feed prisoners uh so the way in which i got this seed was so interesting what happened was when i was um traveling in uh pennsylvania i learned about the tremendous success of black caterers in uh the area between Uh, Philadelphia, uh, Delaware, and Baltimore. And they had done a lot of breeding. They bred their own, they raised their own foods for their catering business. And many of them became very wealthy with restaurants. And one of the things that they they grew was, uh, that was a part of this collection is called a Roughwood Collection. And we have a few seeds. We'll have more from that collection uh, that was actually collected by uh, Horace Pippin, the, the artist the famous uh, artist. And so uh, one of the uh, ones we got was one called the Moya Minsing Spring Valley Jail um, tomato. And so I had to grow this tomato. <laughs> it was uh, bred by prisoners in these jails in Philadelphia. Uh, there are other things that come from that. And then um, a year or two later, somebody sent me another story, Yana Fishman, from um, from North Carolina sent me the Lottie Collard. That is another variety that was bred in prisons uh, in Lumberton, North Carolina. And there's, boy, what a story goes with that. Oh my God, we are uncovering that story. We're on the trail. We've actually located a prisoner who was involved in uh, growing that uh, because the prisoners have to grow their own uh, food. We also understood that the warden or some other people were trading seeds. So we're on the hunt for that story. So as I was telling my friend, Mike Washburn, this story that we had located these two prison seeds, he says, well, I got one I think you'll be interested in. And I'm going like, what is it? So he says, it is the Angolan prison okra. So he sent me those seeds that came yesterday. And so we are planting those out in honor of our ancestors and our family members that were captured and still to this day work in unpaid servitude to our country through the prison system uh, and are still doing seed breeding work until this day in jails in America. Uh, Slavery uh, ended on paper, but in actuality, uh, many of our family members are languishing in prisons. But I must tell you that of all places to be in a prison, the place that they feel most safe 
and most happy is in the prison gardens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those can be places of solace and healing and you get some a little bit of autonomy, just a tiny bit right yes, over the plants. Yeah, so that's always something that can bring you a little bit of comfort there. Um, so let's talk about maybe a, a story from your family, a seed that has been saved through your generations or maybe rediscovered that was grown in your family. Any personal story like that, Bonita? Oh, I have the most precious story. So I mentioned earlier that uh, my uh, my family was from Winsboro, South Carolina, and they were farming uh, after, uh, you know, during and after Reconstruction. And it turned out they were pretty darn good at it. So <clears throat> I went to a funeral. Uh, one of my grandfather's sisters, his youngest sister, passed away. And about 60 of my mother's first cousins showed up. So, um, I, you know, wow. as a, as a history teacher, I started interviewing these people and they were telling me how, how, how much money they made doing this farming because they were listing their children to college. Mm. And one of the most important things they grew was this watermelon. So it was like, you grew a watermelon, you know, and at that point I did not know detailed information about varietal, uh, you know, sentience, like, you know, the work I'm doing now. So I heard about this watermelon. And so I interviewed uh, several, maybe five or six cousins that talked about how they would sell this watermelon. And they also grew sweet potatoes, other things, but they were able to live well, buy property. I went through the property records in Fairfield County and found all of this property was purchased by uh, my uh, ancestors. And I was shocked that in that period, post-slavery, they're able to do what we can't do now. They bought all of this property, kept expanding their farms, making them larger and larger. So uh, once uh, I met some of these folks from uh, Seed Savers Exchange, they offered to rematriate seeds back to our growers. Uh, lost seeds from families, you know, who never thought they would ever see those varieties again when they moved north, or even southern growers who lost uh, contact. And so I started interviewing my uh, elder relatives. I have a cousin in Chapel Hill that's 105 years old. I started with her. She's pretty darn amazing. And uh, she told me that um, she didn't remember the variety because she was a small child when they moved up north, they call it up north, north, which was from South Carolina to North Carolina. <laughs> they moved up north. But she directed me to another cousin who was still down on the family farm in Winsboro. So I interviewed him and he was like 95. Right? And he's saying, you expect me to remember what varieties we grew? So I did this activity, which I do with all my interviewees as we collect seed stories. And uh, I asked him, to go back into his memory about what what the kitchen smelled like, you know, uh, what was being served for, for a lunch and dinner, uh, you know, what was on the table, you know, and then he began to develop, you know, s some connection. I think they call it sight of memory. And so he began to be able to visualize that. And so then I, I asked him, you know, what was that watermelon called? He says, well, I think you've gone too far to ask me that question. So I said, well, stick with me. And I asked him, uh, was it round? Was it large? Was it a icebox? 
uh, which is a tiny little watermelon that will fit in the refrigerator? Or was it a picnic, which is a large watermelon that can feed multiple people? You know, was it yellow? Was it orange? Was it red? Did it have stripes? What was the skin like? And through this uh, journey into his memory, it just jumped out at him. It was the Stone Mountain Watermelon. So it was so exciting. And I shared this with all my cousins. And because of the work I'm doing now, all my city-fied cousins are now interested in this agricultural history. And uh, five of them uh, hopefully will be growing. Uh, one is gardening, doing that work. And I, I have uh, gotten these Stone Mountain watermelon seeds and I'm uh, sending those to uh, my cousins. I'm also sending starts for those that maybe don't feel as confident uh -huh. with seeds. And so my family in 2023 will be growing a watermelon that has been um, uh, successful in my family for a hundred years. Wow. And yeah, I think that's such a great idea about sending them the started seedlings. Um, for those who aren't comfortable with seeds, even though I feel like, you know, almost watermelon seeds are set it and forget it. You just have to keep them watered, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, they want yep. a hot place. They want to be in the mm -hmm. hottest place in your garden. For sure. So, uh, so and they, they, you can trellis them so they can grow up on a fence uh, and they uh, want, or they can be near a wall. So the heat can bounce off of them. And then you don't need to leave every watermelon on the vine. You you know, you cull them down to maybe two or three that you let go to full production. But that's where we are now, uh, Kathy. Mm -hmm. We are back all the way back at ground zero at the place where our ancestors were uh, thriving uh, and were proud of their ability to take care of their families. I would like us uh, so many family, every American family to experience, uh, you know, not at that level, but at some pride, even if it's nothing but oregano, I've got a Cuban oregano that you can't hardly kill. You know, it grows in the kitchen. It's so prolific. And we've given it, um, I started out with two plants. We've given it to probably 80 or 90 people and 90% of them still have it, you know, uh, years later. It's there, there's a bunch of it in the orphan's court in Charles County, Maryland, because I gave it to two or three people in that office. They've broken off pieces, and now it's on every desk. When you walk in the orphan's court, you see this oregano. So we're reclaiming our heritage one bite at a time. Mm, so true. And then pass-along plants, sometimes called heirloom, um, those are some of the best things in my garden. I know that you, mm -hmm. every time you look at it, or every time you might eat it or cut a flower from it, you think about that person who gave it to you. And I would think that the watermelon your family is growing, uh, nothing is sweeter or better tasting than what you grow yourself, of course. Of course. But it's going to be even sweeter knowing that family background. Yeah, because it's a precious memory. And it's a way to salvage something good that came out of the enslaved experience that the stories of triumph and victory and success and independence are um, what will fuel us, especially in light of the current times where people are trying to erase our history. We can reclaim our food history and our food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So it's very exciting work. 
and people are are running to do it. Uh, people, there's a very large uh, movement in uh, BIPOC communities, and we're doing it. Can I talk a little bit about our indigenous community work? Do you have a minute? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about that. And then we also want to talk about um, capturing some of that history project you were talking about, and then we'll give some links for people to learn more. But let's talk about that indigenous work. So, um, uh, when I, as I began this journey uh, with the seed company, uh, there's a, a company called Freed, uh, Freed Seeds uh, Foundation, the Free Seed Foundation, a gentleman by, by the name of uh, Bill Braun. And uh, when we were talking about this region where uh, we're at, which is the, um, they call it the West, uh, Western Shore of the Chesapeake, uh, that uh, there were foods that were uh, were uh, commonly grown by the Piscataway and traded by the Piscataway Nation, Piscataway Koi, Rappahannock, Tampahannock, and uh, Nanticoke, Lenape tribes of this region, uh, the Anacosta people as well. And so uh, he, uh, this gentleman says, well, you know, Bonita, I have in my possession a very rare seed that belongs to the Piscataway people. And of course, I, you know, I was, I can't even believe this. This is so cool. He said, but there's only 35 of them. That's all we have. And I, I would like to uh, rematriate these seeds back to the Piscataway people. Uh, and also there was another local tribe near in this area called the Akakeek. And there are no more Akakeek people left. So uh, we began this journey of talking about um, providing uh, heirloom varieties back to the tribal communities who have lost so much. Of course, they've lost their land. Many of them have lost their lives. They've lost knowledge of their history, uh, which was, you know, uh, done, uh, you know, by design through the Dawes Act and other ways in which they have, uh, um, it appeared that, that all was lost. So here we are now in a position to bring back those seeds and put them in the hands of the people whose ancestors ate them, traded them, and grew them. So it was a very exciting uh, experience. The problem is that the Pecataway don't have any tribal lands. They are not in possession of any land for the tribe. Uh, luckily, the Akakeek Foundation has agreed to um, provide sanctuary for um, the Piscataway uh, people. And um, the other thing that was lost about that is the knowledge of growing. And so we're working uh, with the newly appointed, just this month, the uh, National um, Southern Maryland uh, National Heritage Area, and growing out these cultural varieties is going to be a major part of the work we do. Uh, and so uh, we have Nanticoke, uh, which is a delicious uh, squash that is uh, so amazingly biodiverse. Uh, you just can't believe how the manifestations that come out of this tremendous gene pool. And we have the Lenape pulling corn that's currently being farmed by Piscataway people in Southern Maryland. And then we have uh, other rarer seeds that we found that uh, will make its way back home. 
as we uh, open up and find uh, places for the Piscataway. We uh, also were able to find a summer squash for the Nanticoke people that are growing in native roots in Delaware. So they are now growing out this delicious sweet summer squash that was a Nanticoke variety. And with the Ramapo and Lenape, uh, other varieties have been matriated back to those tribal communities. So Ujama calls itself a Black Indigenous uh, organization. And so the work of rematriation of seeds and plants back to communities is paramount and center stage for, for what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, um, we are working with Bryn Mawr University on lost crops of the Chesapeake. So we're developing uh, a multi-year process Uh, We've applied for a grant. It doesn't matter. We're doing it if we get the grant or not. So we'll be uh, researching and looking and uh, developing places where people can come and learn. We call them uh, food forests. And so we've named our food forest after Dr. Wangar Mathai, who is the first African uh, sub-Saharan African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And and as important as that, she was the first environmentalist to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was responsible for developing the Green Belt Foundation, uh, which plants uh, uh, trees all over the world. Over her short life, she uh, was uh, oversaw the uh, planting of 40 million trees in uh, Africa. And um, we have already started three Wangari Mathai uh, food forests in public places, in public schools, at environmental learning centers, interpreting uh, these, uh, which means putting signage that teaches people. And we're helping people to understand that your lawn very well might be your salad. You're probably stepping on something. Uh, for instance, you're stepping on those dandelion, you know, they make some really good wine. <laughs> okay. So we want to help people to rediscover uh, the natural environment. And we believe if you see the forest as, uh, as a place of safety, as a place where you can, you can find medicinals, where you can find food, that's a cool place in the wintertime. As we teach people to look for these things, we hope to build a love and respect for the forest and the value of trees and the tremendous gift of fresh air that they are struggling to give us today, in spite of our ill behavior. Uh, these trees are still putting out tons and tons of, of fresh uh, calm, uh, air every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have we have a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot of, of wonderful work, uh, and we hope to uh, extend our project up to uh, the Bacasset uh, and the Wampanoag uh, Indians we're working with. Uh, Chief George, who is a, dis- a descendant of King Philip, uh, who received the pilgrims as they came uh, into Plymouth Rock. So the goal is everybody, no matter where you're from, I got a Ukrainian seed. We're, all our growers are growing Ukrainian seeds. We have Palestinian uh, wheat. So the goal is you all have a story. You know, you all have something that's important to you and your family. You know, Ujama encourages you to know your stories and find your stories and respect your elders, quiz them all and go deep and find out what is the the food that made you because we all agree you are what you eat, right? <laughs> so. yep. 
and such important and fascinating work. And how can people find out more, get in contact with you? All right. So um, our uh, work uh, with farmers and reclaiming that heritage is, can be found at Ujama Farms. That's U-J-A-M-A-A farms.com. You can learn more about our work. And if you're interested in supporting uh, this really exciting, I must tell you, this work is actually quite fun as well. Uh, you can uh, find out more about us and support us by uh, looking uh, and purchasing uh, seeds from uh, Ujama Seeds. That's U-J-A-M-A-A seeds.com. So um, as we expand our collection, uh, we uh, this year are now offering perennials. Uh, we have trees and shrubs, all kinds of culturally meaningful things. And uh, we hope that we know for sure that there's something for everyone. Uh, enjoying the movement. Let's plant trees. Let's, let's respect our ancestors and the planet. Thank you so much, Bonita. And I totally agree. Seeds are just fun. How about that? (laughs) It's fun to play with seeds, fun to sort seeds, fun to collect seeds. And for no other reason, uh, all these other great reasons we gave, but just to have the fun of the hobby of collecting and growing your own seeds is wonderful too. Yeah. And a lot of them taste good. And do you know what? Some of them make really beautiful jewelry. <laughs> I'm looking for somebody. If you know how to make jewelry, we have this Turkish seed that is so gorgeous. Uh, you know, um, uh, we also have the Art Combi watermelon that some of you may know. It's the one that has like a handle. You know that watermelons were also bred in, in Africa. And this Art Combi watermelon is built with a little, I mean, it, it's like a crook neck. And you, yeah. it's easy to carry. So uh, I don't know if that's that will not be in a catalog until uh, next season. But look forward. There's more uh, wonderful stories and deliciousness that's coming our way. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yarrow Plant Profile Yarrow, Achelia mellifolium, is a perennial plant that is used in pollinator gardens, meadows, as a ground cover, and in herb gardens. It is native to North America, Asia, and Europe. It is hardy to USDA zones 3 to 9. The leaves are soft and have a fern-like appearance. The flowers are available in a range of colors, including white, yellow, pink, red, or peachy tones. It attracts bees and butterflies to your garden. Yarrow likes full sun, heat, and good drainage planted in average to poor soils. If given rich soils or fertilizers, it grows leggy and flops over. The plant is drought tolerant and deer resistant. It makes an excellent cup flower and also dries easily for preserving it. Deadhead the first flush of blooms when they start to fade to encourage a second round of blooms later in the summer. It is used as an healing herb for wounds 
and it's been used for centuries to brew beer as well as tea. Yarrow is easy to propagate by digging and dividing a section and then replanting the clumps. It can also self-sow. Warning, this plant can be an aggressive spreader. Yarrow, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, the lilies are blooming, both the Asiatic lilies that are highly scented in the garden and the daylilies that are starting to bloom up a storm and hopefully will go on and on for me this summer. Over at the community garden plot, we've harvested the garlic for the season and it's curing for the next few weeks before we can use it for cooking and store the extra. And I'm still picking blackberries and lettuces. We've put in seeds for our cutting flower garden. And we're happy to see that one of the zucchini mounds has sprouted seedlings up. Um, and we'll just play wait and see with the other zucchini mound and see if those ever appear. Some good news that we received over our short spring break. Uh, we received a... GardenCom 2023 Laurel Media Award at the silver level for digital media podcast series overall. And we are now in competition to receive a gold award, which we will hear about whether that has happened uh, later this summer. And I'll share that news if that happens. So very proud of our achievement and for everybody who has assisted this podcast thank you so much to all of our guests our listeners and supporters in local gardening events a couple upcoming events i wanted to pull your attention to include uh the maryland native plant society's monthly meeting taking place on june 27th at 7 p.m that is a tuesday evening over Zoom. You can register for that at mdflora.org. The topic is ecological gardening with climate change to prevent future invasions and assist native migrations. The speaker is Bethany Bradley. She's a professor of biogeography and invasion ecology in the Department of Environmental Conservation at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And that is free and open to the public. Uh, the next event is a series of a lectures called Introduction to Fern ID. And if you've ever tried to uh, identify a fern in the woods, you'll know how difficult that is. So this is taking place from June 28th to July 26th on Wednesday evenings. Uh, the lectures are held online via Zoom. It's 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And it is um, also... Uh, has supplemental workshops in person and field trips on Saturday, July 8th to National Arboretum in D.C., Saturday, July 22nd to Riverbend Park in Virginia. The fee is $260 to sign up for that series of courses. The instructor is Kit Sheffield, and this course is being hosted by Nature Forward and you can find out more about that and register at natureforward.org. Look under the Programs tab for that. 
happy gardening. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word on cucumelons from Ellen Wells, and that's me. I'm Ellen. I'm also the editor of a fun new home and garden newsletter called Food and Flower. You can find that by heading over to foodandflower.substack.com. I am also editor of two horticulture industry trade newsletters you may have heard of. One is called Buzz, and the other is called Tropical Topics. But today's topic concerns a somewhat new-to-me edible called the cucumelon. I've grown it once, and that was a couple of years ago, and I'm telling you I will be scouring all of my local garden centers trying to find and grow this thing. I loved it so much the first time. But first, what exactly is a cucumelon? It's a funny name, right? Well, you might also find it at the garden center called Mexican Sour Gherkin Cucumber. It's a plant in the cucumber family whose fruits actually look like grape-sized watermelon. Uh, And it has a green-hued mottled skin. That's why it looks like a watermelon. These tiny fruits with a tangy, sour flavor are meant to be eaten fresh in salads or even pickled for use in, you know, as a salad topping or a sandwich topping. Or, hey, why not in a fancy martini? 
But that is not why I would grow this cucumelon. Not at all. I quite dislike the flavor, actually. I would grow this plant, again, for its amazing vineability. I just love the way it grows. It vines like a champ. But without the thicker stems and thicker vines you'd see in a normal-sized cucumber. So it's not all, you know, knees and elbows looking. Uh, The coverage of its foliage is just really quite dense, and it is just so attractive. The whole kit and caboodle, as they say. One plant will grow up and around anything. Uh, So give it plenty of space. It'll grow to be be about six to seven foot tall uh, if you straightened it out. But why would you do that? Just let it grow. Let it ramble all over your garden fence. It'll deck itself out in hundreds of buttercup yellow, mini-sized flowers. The flowers that you would get in a cucumber plant, but smaller. And it'll result in hundreds of mini-sized mottled cucumelons of about one inch in length. Some other growing tips. I just have three of of them for you. Uh, First one, give it full sun. Second one, give it plenty of water. And third, give it plenty of space to roam around. And a fourth tip, just for me, my point of view, give the fruits to the birds uh, and just enjoy the vine for its ornamental value. So that's it. This was the last word on cucumelons from me, Ellen Wells, of the Food and Flower newsletter over on Substack. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.